0: This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter the promo code fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick. I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool.
1: Hi, Allison.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm just fine. How are you?
0: We are lucky to have a special guest in the studio today. Kent Allison is here to talk about the latest results of PwC's annual employee financial wellness survey. So you'll get to figure out how financially stable you are compared to your coworkers sitting next to you. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Judge away. We'll also answer your question about Bro's favorite topic: required minimum distributions. Seriously. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers and today's question comes from Rob. My father-in-law has a question in regard to making his grandkids beneficiaries to his Roth IRA. His question is, if both grandparents pass away, do the kids have to take out required minimum distributions? For our newer listeners out there, you might not know that I'm legally obligated to sing required minimum distributions just to make it slightly more interesting for you guys.
1: Uh, yes, uh, well, it. <laughs> All right,
0: required minimum distributions. All right, better what are known the kids have to as
1: do? RMDs. Uh, so, thanks for the question, Rob, and kudos to your grandfather for thinking of the financial well-being of your kids, especially with a Roth IRA, because it's an excellent estate planning tool. So. Let's start with those RMDs. If you own a traditional IRA, not the Roth, the traditional, you have to start taking money out at age 70 and a half. One of the benefits of owning the Roth IRA, if you own it yourself or you inherited it from a spouse, you do not have to take out those required minimum distributions. So you if you don't need the money, you want to leave it to your beneficiaries, you can just let it grow on its tax-free way and leave it alone for them. However, If the account is inherited from a non-spouse beneficiary, you have two choices, and this is what we're talking about with the grandkids. You either have to take all the money out within five years, or you have to do the required minimum distributions and just take a little bit each year. Those are based on life expectancy, so for younger kids, it's probably not going to be that much money. So If you're 10, for example, your required minimum distribution is a little over 1% of the account. So it's not a bad deal at all. But a couple of things that you mentioned in the question I do want to highlight. So you had said if both grandparents pass away, do the kids have to take out the RMDs? It's important that if you want if your grandfather wants his wife to inherit the account first, that she is named as the primary beneficiary and then the kids as the contingent beneficiaries. Because if you name the grandkids as the beneficiaries, even if the will says I want the money first to go to my wife, it'll go to the grandkids. Now, what if the grandfather passes away, grandma says, I don't need the money, and the kids could use the money now? Within nine months of your grandfather passing away, she can disclaim the inheritance, it bypasses her, and it goes straight to the kids. So it gives her the option of inheriting it or passing it along at that point. The great thing also about inheriting a Roth IRA is, as long as the account has been open for five years, you don't pay the taxes. And even though the kids are young, before age 59 and a half, there's no 10% penalty on required minimum distributions from inherited accounts. Final tip, it's better when the kids to inherit the account to separate the accounts. If they keep it as one account, the required, required minimum distributions will be based on the oldest kid's life expectancy. If you have multiple people inheriting the IRA, whether it's a Roth or a traditional, it's better to separate those accounts. This is obviously all sort of complicated stuff, which is why we often recommend that For estate planning, you go see a qualified attorney, but it also highlights the need that when you inherit some assets, it's probably good to see an attorney and an accountant as well.
0: Thanks to Casper for sponsoring today's episode. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Casper offers free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period. Yes, that's right, 100 days if you're in the U.S. and Canada. So, you don't have to lie down in a showroom, which is always kind of weird and awkward. (laughs) We actually had a listener, he took advantage of the $50 off, which I'm going to tell you about in a second, and he got a mattress for his mom and he loved it so much he's going to get one for himself!
1: I've I've generally heard nothing but good things.
0: Yeah! So you, can, you dear listener, can be like our other dear listener and save an additional $50 off toward a mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash fool and entering the promo code FOOL. That's casper.com slash fool, promo code FOOL. It's
2: nice work if
0: you can get it, and you can get it, won't you tell me how? All right, we're really excited today to welcome Kent Allison into the studio from I want to say PricewaterhouseCoopers, but you say PwC now. Is Feasier. that correct? It's, 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 <laughs> thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> Kent is the national leader of PwC's Employee Financial Wellness Practice. and Every year, his team produces the Employee Financial Wellness Survey, which tracks the financial well-being of full-time employees, uh, adults across the country. Kent joins us today to talk about the latest survey results. Hi! Thank you for coming in! Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so great to have people come into this studio.
1: Well, especially someone. So, if I understand this correctly, so the whole idea of, of workplace financial wellness is becoming sort of more well known these days. But when you started it, it really wasn't. You're you're kind of a pioneer, aren't you?
2: Well, I was. Uh, We've been doing financial literacy for a long time, um, thirty five years, and about ten years ago, I decided we weren't effectuating enough change, and we needed to do something differently. And so, I came up uh, with this concept of financial wellness from a standpoint of looking and saying, what are they doing on the physical well-being side? Can we parallel it on the financial wellness side? Um, The problem was it was just a concept, so (laughs) I went to the marketplace to test it and see if everybody wanted to um, agree with me with regard to the need for change and whether this concept was going to be validated by the marketplace. Um, Little did I know it would catch on like wildfire, so we were a little ahead of the game um, because I never really had it fully baked, Um, so now we're trying to catch up and kind of help define it for the marketplace.
1: So when you talk about financial wellness, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, it's interesting. There's all these different definitions around uh, financial well-being and financial wellness. Um, we actually uh, left it up to the uh, employees to tell us. So in this this year's survey, we actually asked them what they thought financial wellness was, and it was interesting to find out because retirement really wasn't even mentioned. It was more about a state of being. It was more like uh, relief from financial stress, debt-free, you know, financial freedom. So the terms they were using were not kind of coinciding with what. 30, 40 hist- years of history of financial education were tied to, which was kind of retirement funding and, and, and investments. So, um, so we look at it as kind of uh, getting somebody to a, a, a peaceful state around their finances um, where they are comfortable that they're living within their means, they're meeting their goals, and they're, they're thinking about the future comfortably.
1: One of the things that you found in the, in the survey is that the people who aren't particularly financially well, if we can express it that way, is they're actually experiencing a good deal of stress. Oh yes, and it affects how they perform in the workplace.
2: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we looked at this, in this year's survey was really the the impact of financial stress on some of the key factors that employers would be concerned about. So we looked at those who said they were under financial stress and against those that weren't, and uh, the the uh, differences were dramatic in terms of. Um, distractions at work, I think it was five to one in terms of uh, the the ratio of people who were distracted at work that were financially stressed to those that weren't, Um, uh, productivity, absenteeism, loyalty, all significantly impacted by financial stress. So there was a real kind of... uh, um, call to arms there with regard to employers recognizing the value in terms of, of really helping employees relieve financial stress.
1: I read an article maybe a year ago talked about the impact of financial stress on your health. and It was the first time I came across a term called presenteeism, as opposed to absenteeism. So presenteeism is, you're actually at work, but mentally you're not really at work.
2: Correct, and we, we and we looked at that as well, and it impacts that as well. So it's interesting because the the health side, um, one of the reasons that drove us to this whole financial well being was the correlation of financial stress to the health side, because financial stress being the number one cause of stress, and obviously stress having a direct impact on health and well being on the on the physical well being side, and having a direct impact on costs. So. Um, when you talk about kind of the the benefits to an organization, they they like to deal with the uh, the numbers, um, and those productivity and and healthcare costs are are clear benefits to the organization if they can solve the problem.
1: So, what are people stressing about, and and is there a group of people that is more stressed than others? Because in the report you looked at. Uh, generations, millennials, gener- Gen X, and the baby boomers.
2: It's interesting across all generations. The, the number one cause of stress consistently over, I think we've been doing this survey, seven years is uh, the lack of uh, uh, kind of an emergency fund, the inability to uh, deal with a small financial shock. To, the, to their finances, so um, whether it's medical or even a car breaking down, disrupts their entire finances. So, um, so that's the number one cause of stress. Um, generationally, um, you know, that, that's a toss-up. Um, we've been seeing kind of a fluctuation between millennials and Gen X, and two different reasons. Millennials are dealing really with the cash flow and debt issues, especially student debt, and, um, and the struggle of living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Gen X, I like to kind of compare them to tweeners. Um, they're in between the boomers and the uh, millennials, and they're suffering from both ends of that in the sense that they're trying to take care of their kids, and they're also finding themselves taking care of aging parents while also trying to deal with their own personal finances. So they've got kind of unique stresses going on because they're getting hit from both sides.
1: What can employees, employers do about it? Well,
2: it's interesting. We're seeing a, a change going on just because of the recognition that even though employers have tried to fix the retirement savings deficiency issue um, through plan design, auto enrollment, auto escalation, um, they're looking, they looked at target date funds to help with the investment side, they're looking at kind of how to make it last through potential annuities. The reality is it's all starting to look like a defined benefit plan, but they're just not funding it. Um, so, um, but um, So they've all tried to do it through plan design. Um, but I always say, you know, you're forcing people into the plan, you're uh, escalating their contributions, and then you're watching it come out through loans and withdrawals. And the, per- the reason of, uh, for that is that you really never solved for the uh, what was causing the problem in the first place, which was uh, essentially cash flow and, and debt issues and other uh, competing priorities. So by forcing them into the plan, you may have exacerbated a situation at home where they're living paycheck to paycheck, and now you've forced them into plan, and now they're going back into those funds to help resolve those needs through the loans and withdrawals. Yeah, that was one of the
1: eye-opening findings of the survey. How many people have taken early withdrawals from their retirement plan, or something like forty-four percent expect that they're going to have to. Because of unexpected expenses and healthcare expenses.
2: Yep, and it was funny because last year, you know, we saw the numbers and 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 we compared this year to last year, and Gen X kind of jumped up in terms of the numbers that actually took withdrawals out. And we looked at last year's number and Gen X told us that <laughs> they, were,
1: they were they were right. planning they were planning on doing it. So
2: so it was kind of hey, look, Good they actually did it. Gen yes. X. Way to go. <laughs> very
1: self-aware, very self-aware. Uh, actually one of the things I was surprised about is that it does seem like things are getting worse when you look at some of the numbers compared to last year's. And in your report, it's a very extensive report, by the way, it's fifty pages long. You have the, a lot of the numbers from last year. It does seem like there is more stress and And more indicators that things are more people are struggling, more people are carrying um, credit card debt, uh, more people have mortgages that are bigger than the value of their home, which I found a little surprising because, on the whole, the economy is doing okay.
2: Yeah, and I think you're still seeing you know kind of the hangover effect. One, you've got millennials maturing, but for the most part, millennials are cash flow sensitive. So if you still have kind of stagnant wages and they're starting to creep up, but you've had a long history of stagnant wages with expenses going up, it, it just it exacerbates the problem with regard to their cash flow. Because they don't have a lot invested, and you look at the numbers, not many people have a lot invested, but um, in particular, they don't have a lot of financial assets. They delayed home ownership. Um, some are still living at home, all trying to deal with this cash flow issue. Well, when the market rises, they don't necessarily see the benefit and with millennials being the biggest portion of the workforce now, um, it doesn't necessarily drive the numbers up when the financial markets and the housing market go up, oh, because they may point. not be heavily vested in it. What would solve their problems would be something that would be more relief on, on on the cash flow side.
1: So, in your position, you are trying to encourage employers to offer something to their employees. Um, a few years ago, someone who worked at one of the local D.C. professional teams, big fan of The Motley Fool, he came in and said, I see these athletes come in, they come out of college, all of a sudden they're making a bunch of money and they're blowing it. Is there something The Motley Fool can do to teach these players how to handle their money better? We had a few meetings about it, but in the end, the folks running the team, the management said, we don't want that legal liability of anyone coming in and giving financial advice to our players. Is that a problem in the workforce where employers are reluctant to give any sort of financial guidance to their employees?
2: Um, We're seeing it lessen. I think there was always a concern around how far they would go and how deep into someone's personal life they will go. But because their purpose is to try to make somebody more retirement ready, and they're finding that these other issues are actually preventing them from being effective in that. They're having to go deeper into the cash flow and the debt and the education issues to essentially solve the, the problem they're trying to solve for. Um, they're also, you know, they're, they're the ultimate fiduciary. They're ultimately responsible for, you know, the well-being of their employees. Um, and I think more the more progressive companies are recognizing that we do have to go deeper and retirement and investment um, focus isn't enough. Um, it's interesting because you know, it's, it's not only us pushing employers to do it, it's really the government pushing employers to it. I've been down on enough panels down in D.C. where essentially the government's trying to look for a solution because they don't want the burden of, mm-hmm. of essentially you know, uh, 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 supporting people in retirement. Um, so, uh, so they're looking to the employer and saying, what can we do to help you help your uh, employees become more retirement prepared?
1: Uh, one of the outcomes of the report was the effect of student loans. and I don't remember the percentages off the top of my head, but I was surprised at how many people like the Gen Xers, who you define as age 36 to 56, something like a third of them have student loans and almost 10% of the boomers have student loans, which I found kind of surprising that all these folks still have student loans, but also, and I guess a lot of them have it for their kids, but how that correlates to financial stress and how people with student loans are more likely to have trouble meeting day-to-day expenses carrying credit card debt. It's pretty shocking.
2: It is. And what was interesting was we uh, we looked at that statistic last year because I was a little surprised by it as well. And it ended up that it wasn't all just their kids debt. A lot of it was their own debt going back to school, hmm. um, retooling and, and trying to get back into the workforce. So when we, 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 you know, through the recession and when people found themselves, you know, out of work, um, some went back to school to essentially uh, find skills where they could be employed. So um, so this hangover effect of student loans is is moving up into the generations. And I, th- I would presume as people change jobs, you know, more often and the industry changes a lot more quickly, that you're going to see the kind of this continuous education process go on and people having to retool and re-educate um, so it, it is a, a growing issue um, and we see it uh, you know and when you look at people who are retired it's the fastest growing uh, segment of bankruptcy um, wow. so you've That's got terrifying. yeah so you've got to you've got to solve some of these issues because it's it's starting to creep into the the retirement world as well so um, so we're education is, is a hard nut to crack you have to start kind of at the beginning and um, and and the decision making of where you go to school, um, how much are you financing? What are you majoring in? What type of job you're going to get on the way out? How many eighteen year olds we talked about this? How many eighteen yeah. year olds you know actually are prepared for um, making yeah. that type of, of analytical decision um, versus going and seeing a nice campus and their
1: friends are going there and that's you know what's yeah. going to drive them to
0: English major. <laughs> I don't
1: know. So. Um, so Nuts and bolts. What does a financial wellness program look like? So, when you have a client, or you go and help an employer, what kind of an employer? What types of things are you doing?
2: Yeah, I mean. Um The word financial wellness right now, um, there's a lot of confusion around it. Um, It hasn't been fully defined. So, a lot of organizations just kind of changed the name of their financial literacy program or their retirement education program and called it financial wellness and called it a day. Right. And Uh, and
1: by financial literacy, you mean basically just information. Information
2: and you know an education session, and you hope that people you know get the information they need and then do something with it. When we talk about financial wellness, financial wellness is really about understanding what their behaviors are. And changing those behaviors for the better, um, so it's much more tactical, uh, much more prescriptive, uh, much more targeted.
0: More incentive-based, maybe I imagine. Um, or- it, it, it,
2: yes and no. I mean, you're you're measuring and monitoring, and then you're recognizing and rewarding be, the the positive behaviors. So in that way, yes. But it's also about kind of getting into the psychological reasons as to why they make decisions, um, and removing the obstacles that are preventing them from moving on. Uh, to making better decisions. So examples, you know, we always talk about somebody, a parent who, you know, wants to take care of their kids first, right, in natural inclination, so I'm going to pay for their education um, at the expense of funding my retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So the reason they're doing it is they care about their kid, they put their kid first, and they want to make sure they're okay. Um, so you have to deal with that psychological aspect of, the, of their decision-making, but try to get them to the right decision.
1: Which, by the way, is save for retirement first, everybody. E- yeah. ex- exactly. Spoiler. Exactly <laughs> where I'm going. Yeah.
2: Because at the end of the day, if you haven't saved for retirement, you then become a burden for your kids. Yes. Right? So you get to the point that the, you know, where they're starting to realize, well, there is value in it. And by the way, when you get to retirement and you're all you know, well and good, You can take care of your kids, and oh, if they went the student loan route or whatever, take care of them that way, but at least you're not becoming a burden to them. So it gets people through that psychological barrier that basically says, I've got to put my kids first and me second.
1: Gotcha. So um, part of what you do provide, I know there are workshops, phone access to professionals, things like that. Not everyone probably can afford all of those things, and I know you work with, generally bigger employers. So if you are, um, let's say you're either an employee somewhere or you're an employer, but you own a smaller company, where should you start first? What's What has the biggest payoff in terms of a financial wellness program?
2: Well, it's interesting because if you ask the employee, every single employee will tell you their number one thing is to have somebody to talk to. So whether that's over the phone, whether it's through the, the, the Internet or, or their phone, um, through a mobile app or... Um, face-to-face, they want to connect. And the reason being is even the the self-help people, at some point in time, want to validate what they think. Um, So they may do a lot of the the upfront work themselves and then ultimately look to somebody to say, you know, does this sound right? Um, Others will pick up the phone first and want to talk to somebody right away because they're just stuck. So uh, to me, that connection to an advisor is ultimately probably what everybody wants and probably what is most interactive. Now, to the extent that technology can kind of give them that type of interaction, I think that's where a lot of technology is trying to head, um, but I have yet to see in my 30 some odd years in this business, um, a technology replace an advisor, and it's been going on a long time. Every time a new technology comes out, they say it's going to, and at the end of the day, I mean, just a few weeks ago, they came out with all these robo-advisors that are now going to a hybrid model where it's mm. the robo-advisor connected to it. Right, a real advisor.
1: Right now, I will say from my own personal experience is that sometimes in a workplace there is someone to talk to, and it's basically the person connected to the four hundred one k or the four hundred three b. They might be a good person to ask questions to. They might really just be a salesperson, and they don't really know what they're talking about. Am I wrong on on basically <laughs> not thinking that those people are like? That doesn't that doesn't scratch that itch.
2: The the reality is the, the the role of that person is to get you into the retirement fund, get you pro- properly diversified, and then ultimately, you know, when it's time to leave the company. Probably roll it over with us, and we'll try to make it last. Right, So it's all focused on the retirement aspects, and that's you know, that's their bailiwick, and that's what they know. Um, they're not going to necessarily help you with the other things, um, and they won't have deep subject matter expertise in, in the areas of cash flow and debt and insurance and so on and so forth. So really, who you're talking to and where their starting point is you know, and what their bailiwick is is, is important. In terms of what are you trying to get out of it, Um, they're certainly fine to talk about the retirement plans and the types of investments in the retirement plan and the benefits of contributing to the retirement plan. Um, But when you start to talk about these other issues, it really starts to kind of uh, stray away from really where their expertise is.
1: I will say one thing I noticed just going through the report: there's it emphasizes sort of the interrelatedness of all the financial issues. Right. So if you're having money problems, it can lead to health problems. If you have health problems, it could lead to money problems. And all of that can be exacerbated if you have too much debt or if your mortgage is underwater. It's all very interconnected. So if you just if you're just trying to handle one aspect of person's, a person's finances, it's probably not going to do the job.
2: Yeah, I mean the one thing we find, I mean, you, you want you want to really hit the nerve in terms of what what's going to change things. You, you, you better start to kind of you know it's the age old adage you have to have a rainy day fund. If you don't have a rainy day fund, things fall apart very quickly. Um, so. If we were encouraging where people should focus and where companies should focus, rather than just everything about the retirement plan and getting them into the retirement plan and doing everything to try to resolve their financial issues through the retirement plan, is to take a step back and say, how do we solve some of these other issues? And you're seeing companies do this. Um, some are, are are kind of having variable pay to kind of help people, you know, meet their expenses in the middle of the month. Um, they have, you know, short-term, you know, loan um, capabilities that aren't necessarily through these payday loan providers, but something that the company may advance. Um, On their on their pay at the end of the month to kind of deal with an unexpected expense, but the reality is they have to save more, and you have to you have to get them where they have that as a focus and perhaps a vehicle that outside of the retirement plan to kind of start to carve away some funds that are there only in, in the case of emergency. Otherwise, they'll continue to raid the retirement plans and continue to have the stress that we're seeing because they're living paycheck to paycheck and are worried about that unexpected expense. So solve that problem, you solve a lot of issues on the on the on the employer side, and you you have people that are a little more comfortable with, and heading towards that kind of financial wellness state.
1: So, let's say someone listens to all this, loves everything they're hearing. What's the next step? What do you rec- where do you recommend people should go? As a website, should they visit? A book they should read? Some place they could learn about increasing their own financial wellness in the workplace?
2: Well, I would first see what you have available to you from your employer. Um, See if it addresses the the needs that you have. If not, maybe have a discussion with your employer about, you know, whether they have resources to to address your particular needs. Companies offer a lot of benefits. Um, The problem often is that the employee is disconnected from those benefits. They don't know what they are, they don't know what tools they have, what resources they have available. If you look in the silos of the vendors that they have providing it, they have a retirement plan administrator who has tools and resources and education they have a health care provider they have an insurance provider life insurance provider and various voluntary benefits And I always use the example we kind of since we don't sell anything we're in between kind of benefits communication and all the vendors they chose to kinda transact we try to connect the individual based on their particular needs to the solution that the company provides so if somebody doesn't have a will most of them don't know that, a the company may be offering low-cost legal that will help them get a will in place right away. So, uh, first step is to kind of see what you have, um, and then how does it match up to your needs? If there's a void, or you know, uh, there, then to talk to the employer and say, you know, we we had an employer who everybody in the uh, all the employees said they wanted pet insurance, and they didn't have pet insurance. So, sure enough, they introduced pet insurance became one of their number one benefits in terms of like. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, everybody was kind of waiting for it, and, yeah. and they, they delivered on it, and ultimately, they got what they wanted. So, it's not always just status quo. If, if enough employees want something, and that's more important than some of the other benefits they're providing, they may switch out a benefit to, to something that's more resourceful for you.
1: Got it. Well, this is great. Thanks, Kent, for Thank coming. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming in and
0: sharing your research with us. It's been wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you so much.
1: On Mondays, I never go to work. On Tuesdays, I stay at home. On Wednesdays, I never feel inclined. Work is the last thing on my mind. On Thursdays, it's a holiday. And Fridays, I detest. Oh, it's much too late on a Saturday, and Sunday is the day of rest.
0: Oh, boy, have times changed in the workforce in the last 100 years. And thanks to a report by the Census Bureau, The Life of American Workers in 1915 by Carol Leon. We can really, really see in stark terms just how things have changed. Right.
1: So if you think your job isn't so great, wait till you hear what it was like in 1915.
0: So here we go. Who was working, by the way, back then? So the 1920 census shows that among people aged 14 and older, because yes, if you were 14, Get a
1: job. That's right.
0: The proportion of the population that was in the labor force was 85% of men and 23% of women. Hmm. So, in contrast, let's head to 2015, where now people age 16 and older, not 14, 69% of men and 57% of women are in the workforce. So, obviously, the big difference here is that more women are working across the board, whereas men, particularly under the age of 24 and over the age of 65 aren't as likely to work. So, For example, half of 14- to 19-year-old males worked in 1915 compared to one-third now.
1: Lazy. Get a job! So lazy. I had a job. I did too. What was your first job?
0: Uh, so my fir- like outside of babysitting and all that kind of stuff, I was a secretary for the principal at my. At my oh, school. I
1: totally see that. Yeah, so I started yeah. at
0: 15, and I did a lot of like, um, transcribing letters and typing and stuff like that. Did I ever
1: tell you how I forged my birth certificate so I could work at McDonald's?
0: No story time. <laughs> Gather around, kids. Here we go. Well, I wasn't old enough.
1: I had to be a year older. I think I, I must have been 14 and you had to be 15 or 15, mm-hmm. 16. So I photocopied my birth certificate, whited out the date, typed a new date because I had a typewriter back then, photocopied it again, brought it to McDonald's. And it Just, worked? And it worked. No way! They let me work there, yeah. <laughs> that's the work ethic I had. No kidding! Kids today. Ah. Committing fraud to get a job. That was me. That
0: was, that's how badly <laughs> we wanted to work that's when we right. were young. All right. So let's head back to 1915. And also, like most of this data is 1915, 1920, 19 around that time. So it's not exactly 1917, but whatever. All right. Where were people working? Really dangerous places. So you can imagine people working in the mines. Yes, that's notoriously dangerous, but mill work was also really hazardous. BLS reported 23,000 industrial deaths in 1913 among a workforce of about 38 million. So that's equivalent to a rate of 61 deaths per 100,000 workers. Hmm. In contrast, in 2000, the most recent data, it's 3.3 deaths per 100,000 oh. workers. wow. That's good. We have brought that down considerably. <laughs> so that's good. In 1920, if you weren't working on the farm, you were working in manufacturing, so roughly a third of people worked on the farm compared to 1% of employed people now. One in every three non-farm jobs in 1910 was manufacturing compared to one in 10 now. Hmm. Where do people work now? Where do you want to guess?
1: <laughs> at their desk, at a computer. Yeah,
0: <laughs> roughly a third fall into the bucket of professional and technical. Hello, computer programmers. <laughs> Whereas it was less than five percent of the workforce in 1910. Hmm. So, when you ask Hannah, "What do I do for what do I do at work?" she'll just say, "Computer." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, that's what I do."
1: I how o- how old, Hannah? She's three she's four. now. Yeah, Fun, she's yeah. Four. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right, how much were people making? In 1915, you were doing about average if you were making $687 a year. Wow. If you were a woman, cut that number in half. (laughs) So, in terms of $200,015. The average pay of six hundred eighty-seven dollars is the equivalent of about sixteen thousand dollars. So yes, you're making six hundred eighty-seven dollars a year. That's the equivalent of sixteen thousand, roughly now, which is well below today's income. So median annual earnings for men ages fifteen and over in two thousand fourteen were about forty thousand, um, or fifty thousand if you worked overtime. For women in two thousand fourteen, it was twenty-eight thousand, or about forty thousand for women who worked overtime. Got it. How much were people working? All the hours, God sends. (laughs) Vacations, holidays, and sick leave, forget it. Right. You were lucky if you got, do you want to guess what three days off you were lucky if you got as far as holidays go?
1: Uh, Let's see, Easter, Christmas, and um, New Year's Day.
0: Uh, Well, technically, you're going to get Easter off because that's on Sunday.
1: Well, Someone has to milk the cows. Gonna, I'm not
0: going to give that to you. So you were lucky if you got Christmas, July 4, and Labor Day off. Oh, that was it. It wasn't even until the 30s that people started getting Thanksgiving Day off. So as far as your week went, though, you would maybe, if you were lucky, get Saturday afternoon off and Sunday. Of course, always Sunday. And if you were a mother, you never got a you day off. You never got a day off
1: ever. Nobody ever. helped.
0: These days, 50% of workers in service industries received paid vacation. Well, 90% of workers in production management, finance, etc. receive paid vacation. So, if you're in a desk job, chances are you're receiving paid vacation.
1: I think the whole the whole idea of the weekend really didn't come until after the depression, I think. It's it's a relatively recent idea.
0: Yeah. Vacation days, of course, tend to increase with tenure, so compared to the well, pretty much no days that you used to get off in 1915, <laughs> now employers with 5 years of experience receive an average of 14 days vacation.
1: So, and it goes upwards from
0: there. So, yeah, the bottom line is that.
1: What about the flexible spending accounts back then? Oh,
0: yeah. What about Puppy Day and um, the free food their, fridge? Their 401k and,
1: matches and their healthcare.
0: One time, our people team was talking to Google's people team, and they were saying how the thing that really got in their craw, oh, do people say that, was when people complain about the line for sushi. So, like, they have a cafeteria, all the food's free. All the food's free, but people will gripe about how the line for sushi is too long. And so it's kind of like a standing joke now where they're like, "Oh really? Is the line for free sushi too long?" Sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have to say I went up to someone on our people team and I I started and said, "This is a complete spoiled brat complaint, but we run out of half and half too quick." And I felt so guilty that by Friday we don't have half and half and I'm actually bringing this up as an issue. Coffee's important to an office, but I just even like I don't know, I just felt bad I even made this comment.
0: You know what, though? Today, there were two quarts of half and half in the fridge, where normally there's only one. They
1: took care of it very quickly.
0: See, that's why we got the best in the biz here at the Molly Fool. We do. And puppy days. All right. That's the show. It is edited, Labor of Lovingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is don't make that face. These don't get any better. You should be used to this. Our email is answers at fool.com. Please send in your questions. Bro, do you have any specific requests for the kind of questions you would like to receive?
1: Just any question we haven't already answered. If you've been a long-time listener and you're like, oh, there's one question I've always wanted to ask, we've never discussed it on the show, send it to us.
0: No question too dumb. Or if there's maybe just a general subject you want us to dig into and explain, we can do that too. It doesn't always have to be about how much you should allocate specifically into your 401 k versus your Roth versus your whatever.
1: Right. Not to mention your...
0: Oh, required minimum distribution. Love
1: it. Love it. It's my favorite song. Go out song. On,
0: a, on a literal high note. All right. <laughs> so, yes, please send us your questions. Answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.